History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 54, Two by Sea. I want to apologize up front for both the weird release schedule and any audio quality or background noise issues. This episode, among others releasing soon, was recorded amidst house hunting, the relevant packing, construction outside my apartment, and construction inside my apartment. Needless to say, it's been a little bit hectic. Anyway, last time, we experienced the overwhelming and brutal Greek victory at the Battle of Plataea. Mardonius is dead. Barely 40,000 remaining Persian troops, many of them possibly Thessalian Greeks or Macedonians, are fleeing under Artabazos, and the Greek commanders are lording over the remains of the Persian war dead and enslaved captives. Meanwhile, another battle is taking place. Persistent rumors and legend place it on the exact same day, but Herodotus also says that news from Plataea boosted Greek morale, so who knows. The important thing is that these two battles were back-to-back, This is the Battle of Mycale, and it is arguably one of the most important events in the history of Persia. 
I last checked in with both the Greek and Persian navies in episode 52, and both were happily stationed at their respective bases in the Aegean with no plans to sail against one another. At that point, the Persian fleet, commanded by a cadre of Persian officers, was based on Samos, and was busy making plans to defeat any Eastern Greek uprisings in Ionia or the islands of the Eastern Mediterranean. Meanwhile, the Greeks, nominally led by the Spartan king Leotikidas, and dominated by the Athenian Xanthippus, were all set up at Delos. Delos had formally submitted earth and water to Darius before Marathon, but had apparently been wrested from Persian control. It may be as simple as one fleet abandoned the island and the other moved in. At the start of 479, the Greeks had no plans to sail past this little sacred island. They had even rejected a group of Ionian rebels, begging them to support an uprising in Persian territory. But as the spring and summer wore on and the Greek campaign in Plataea ultimately took shape, attitudes must have begun to change and the Greek navy was probably generally anxious to participate especially after many of the same men had played crucial roles in the Greek successes of the previous year. That's when another group of Eastern Greek rebels came by. This time, they were from Samos, where the Persian fleet itself was based. At first, they were very cloak and dagger about the whole thing. The Samians arrived on Delos and initially did not even give their names. They just called on Leotikidas for aid against the Persian occupation of their homeland. They explained that the surviving ships of the Persian navy were still crippled and undermanned following the defeat at Salome, and easy pickings for the more robust Greek fleet. They also explained that they were planning to launch their rebellion whether the fleet supported them or not. Understandably, the Greek commanders were hesitant to believe this. Even after the defeat at Salome, the Greeks were not fully aware of just how successful they had been the previous year. Most of the Persian wrecks had drifted away from Salome before they could really take stock of the victory. They suspected that these Samians were Persian agents trying to lure them into a trap, especially because they were being so secretive. In an act of good faith, Leotikidas invoked the right of sacred hospitality, or Xenia, both ensuring that the Samian envoy had his protection and indebting himself to their hospitality according to Greek custom. If you've read the Odyssey, this is what Odysseus is constantly invoking when he wants gifts everywhere he goes. It's also the same right invoked between the Persian and Thersander in the last episode. This prompted the leader of the Samians to give his name, Hegesistratos the son of Aristagoras. Now, it's always possible for more than one ancient Greek to have the same name. However, if he really was the son of Aristagoras, then the Greek leaders would have immediately recognized his rebel pedigree. Aristagoras was the one-time tyrant of Miletus who led the Ionian revolt. This was enough to convince Leotikidas that the Greek commanders exchanged oaths and promises with the Samians. 
That night, they made all the right sacrifices and got a favorable omen much faster than their counterparts on land. The next day, they were sailing for Samos. Before long, they had reached the island, anchoring their ships within sight of the Temple of Hera at Kalamisa. Thinking they'd be facing the Persian fleet, sailing around the far side of the island at any moment, they prepared for a naval battle. That battle never came. In a ringing testament to how disastrous Salome had really been, the Persian fleet heard that the Greek navy was coming and abandoned Samos altogether. Instead, they sailed inland to the shore at the foot of Mount Mikale. They met up with a contingent of the Persian army that had been stationed there to monitor any potential unrest in Ionia under the command of a general called Tigranes. As they did this, the Persian naval commanders made a seemingly bizarre decision. They sent the Phoenician ships home. Herodotus doesn't speculate much here, but in concept, the Phoenicians were usually the bulk of the Persian navy, so sending them away would have meant reducing the existing naval power even further. One possibility is that the Persians had decided they simply could not fight the whole Greek fleet again and sent the Phoenicians home to retain some kind of navy in event of another disaster. It's also possible that Herodotus doesn't have all of the information here. In that case, the Phoenicians might not have gone back to Phoenicia, but may have been sent up to Ionia where they could keep a better eye on potential rebels. It almost seems like they could have disbanded the navy altogether at this point, except the Persian-affiliated Greeks were suspected of plotting a rebellion. These were well-founded suspicions, apparently, since we have now seen two Eastern Greek rebel delegations go to meet with the Allied fleet. By keeping the Ionian fighting men and sailors with the Persian army, they effectively kept potential rebel hostages. This would have left the Persian navy composed of Ionian Greeks, Egyptians, and any crews brought from the inland rivers or the Persian Gulf. Given how little we've talked about those groups in terms of the Persian navy, it doesn't seem like there was much left after the Phoenicians departed. It's worth noting that the actual location of this Persian camp is no longer on the coast. Much like the battlefield at Thermopylae, Silt has built up over the last 2,500 years, dramatically extending the coastline around the mouth of the Meander River. The battlefield is only 8 kilometers or like 5 miles further inland today, but other parts of the ancient coast are four times that. This can get confusing if you try to match these locations with a modern map. So the Greeks pursued the retreating Persian fleet into this gulf, between Miletus and Mycale, which no longer exists. They beached their ships just west of the Persian camp and started building fortifications for their own camp, only for their scouts to come back and report that there were no Persians to be found. After the usual debates, the Greeks opted not to head home, for the Spartans, or attack the Hellespont for the Athenians. Instead, they got their boats back in the water and sailed up the Macale promontory. They kept going until they caught sight of the Persian encampment further inland, 
near the modern town of Atburgazi. Leotikidas ordered his ship to sail as close to shore as he safely could, and called out to the Ionians in the Persian camp. He called on them to overthrow their Persian rulers and remember their freedom. Which is rich stuff, coming from the king of a kingdom with more serf slaves than citizens. He even gave the Ionians a signal to watch for, the battle cry Hebe, the name of the Greek goddess of youth. Once again, the Greek naval command figured that this would either incite rebellion among the Ionians, or cause the Persians to distrust their own men. The pro-Greek, or I guess Greek alliance sympathies of the Samians were already well known, so any sailors from Samos were disarmed by the Persian command. Herodotus also says that the Milesians were sent to guard the passes that led up into the mountains. The Persians accurately claimed that the people of Miletus were well suited to this duty because it was their home terrain. But Herodotus also speculates that this was a way to get the Milesians away from the battlefield. This is interesting because we should remember that these are not the same Milesians who led the Ionian revolt, or even their sons at least not in the upper class that would have been in command. Those earlier Milesians had been deported and replaced by immigrants from Caria, who were apparently also distrusted at this point, even though they had been given control of the city by the Persians not a full generation earlier. Once again, the Greeks beached their ships on the coast beneath Mount Mycale, just west of the Persian encampment. They were nearby, probably visible from the Persian camp, and both sides got ready for another battle. This might seem like a bizarre scenario to a modern audience familiar with clearly delineated branches of the military. However, the practical difference between an ancient marine and his counterpart in the normal infantry was mostly an issue of location. They certainly would have been familiar with the skills and tactics to prosecute a land war. In the Greek case, the marines would have been hoplite-class citizens who were just in the navy that year. The bigger issue in this case is that the Greeks would have deployed a much lighter army than usual. Based on a combination of Herodotus and other ancient Greek sources, it seems like the standard trireme had 14 marines on board, while a massively overstuffed ship may have as many as 40. However, this number is absolutely dwarfed by as many as 200 rowers, who would have been equipped to defend themselves if they were boarded, but were not intended for an offensive, hand-to-hand -hand attack. Based on those numbers, the Greeks probably had less than 8,000 heavy infantry, compared to more than 30,000 at Plataea, but almost 30,000 or more lightly equipped sailors to back them up. In this fight, the Greek army probably looked a lot more like a Persian army than we usually expect, a small cadre of heavy fighters backed up by a large force of light infantry. Oddly enough, Herodotus's number for the Persians might actually be spot on in this case. He says there were 60,000 men under Tigranes. The way he writes it leaves it kind of in doubt whether or not this included sailors who had joined them or just the army. 
but making some estimates for the size of the Persian fleet and a realistic size for the camp, 60,000 is a pretty solid total. Herodotus does make it pretty clear that the Persians outnumbered the Greeks, and his information may have been more reliable closer to his homeland in Caria. As the Greeks disembarked and got into their own formations, a familiar story played out. The Greek men got in line, and the Persians formed up as well, emerging from the camp they had erected on the beach, and the Sparabara set up their wicker shield wall to hold off a Greek charge. This is the point where Herodotus says a messenger arrived bringing news of the Greek victory at Plataea. He also reaffirms that it was on the same day. But that seems so unlikely to me. It is possible to sail in a trireme from Mycale to Boeotia in a day, but it stretches credulity to think that the whole final day of Plataea played out, then a messenger set sail, tracked down the fleet at Samos, and into the gulf, and then there was still daylight left for battle. It's not impossible. We don't know exactly when in the day either battle happened, just that Plataea was earlier in the day, but it seems very unlikely to me. Regardless, the story of victory at Plataea boosted Greek morale right as they were preparing to confront the Persians. While the Persians themselves probably had no idea that anything of note had happened that day. The Greek force divided in two. The right wing, led by the Athenians along the beach, and the left, led by the Spartans along the foot of the mountain. The Persians held fast, bows ready, wicker walls in place. The Spartans had to arch up around the geography of ridges and sandbanks, and so the Athenian wing reached the Persian line first. Unfortunately, Herodotus does not devote much detail to this one, but we've seen enough Greek and Persian conflict at this point to guess what happened. The Greeks charged to get behind the line of arrow fire from the Persian camp and began to press against the Sparabara, trying to break through the wall of shields. The Persian bows were stowed away, and spears, axes, and swords all came out, braced for the oncoming melee if the Greeks defeated their first line of defense. It was not the same kind of immediate collapse that the Spartans achieved against the Sparabara at Plataea, but it was probably comparable to parts of the battle line at Marathon. The Athenians and their wing clashed with the Persians briefly before pulling back and charging harder and faster to break through the wall of shields and emerge, spears bristling, into the Persian formation. Following the same pattern, the Persian infantry tried to repel the Greek advance in a gruesome melee before ultimately turning and retreating back toward their own fortified camp. The Greeks pursued them and were actually so close behind the Persian retreat that they followed right through the gates and kept fighting the Persians inside the walls of their fortress. While this was happening, the Spartans and their wing of the army finally caught up and joined the attack on the Persian fortifications. The previously disarmed Samians were still in the camp and clearly saw which way the wind was blowing. Unlike the thousands of Greeks who backed the Persians at Plataea, they revolted on the spot. 
it probably helped that the Greeks clearly had the upper hand in this fight. The Samians weren't armed, but Herodotus says that they helped their fellow Greeks however they could, and that probably included improvised weapons, stealing weapons from fallen soldiers, or just plain old hand-to-hand -hand fighting. Ultimately, though, the Persians were forced to abandon their camp. Tigranes and one of the Persian admirals were killed in battle. Both of their sub-commanders managed to escape the fighting, as did the Persian cavalry, which hadn't even had a chance to ride out against the Greeks before the Greeks were in the camp. The cavalry was commanded by one of Xerxes' brothers, or half-brothers, called Mesistes. This is the one whose name may or may not actually be his title, Mathishta, meaning the greatest, possibly an equivalent to crown prince. I'll be talking more about him in a later episode too, and just further on in this one. The retreating Persians weren't able to get back to their ships since those were beached in the camp that had just been taken over by the Greeks. Instead, the survivors were forced to flee into the hills and up the slopes of Mount Mycalae. Unfortunately for them, they had sent the Milesian Greeks to guard the mountain passes, and when the first waves of Persian and loyal troops reached the Milesians, they directed them up the wrong paths, sending the Persian force up through the winding hills of the mountains, which ultimately spit them right back out near the advancing Spartan wing of the army. Eventually, when it became clear that the Persians were losing, the Milesians opted to curry favor with the mainland Greeks and attacked the Persian retreat outright. As the Persian survivors fled into the hills, they were sent on a wild goose chase up a mountain or attacked by the Greeks they themselves had sent to guard the mountain passes. Meanwhile, the Greeks once again followed the same victorious path as their comrades at Plataea. They looted the Persian camp, enslaved captured soldiers and camp followers, and recorded the most exciting or interesting things they found in the loot. They also burned the walls of the Persian camp, and most importantly, set fire to the Persian ships beached there. Burning these ships is probably the single most important act of the Battle of Mycale, in the long term. Xerxes had doubled the size of the fleet in preparation for his campaign, but after Mycale and Salome, it seems that he was left with only the surviving Phoenician ships, and maybe any Carian, Egyptian, or Cilician ships that happened to be elsewhere at the time. 200 seems like it would be a high estimate. Less than half of the fleet that had set sail in 480 and many of those were still dealing with damage sustained at Salome. This was critical infrastructure that the Empire had been accumulating since Cambyses invaded Cyprus almost 50 years ago. But all of that naval development had been dashed, rammed, or burned in just one year. This would take time to recover from in peace, but the war wasn't over yet, and this will have the largest impact on the Greco-Persian War moving forward.
I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Somewhere in the hills north of the battlefield, the Persian commanders were trying to reconvene and assess the damage. They planned to head northeast and make their way to Sardis, where Xerxes was still in residence. During this 170-kilometer or so march, Masistes was accosted by one of the surviving naval commanders, a man named Artontes. According to Herodotus, Artontes blamed Mesistes for this defeat. He called him a woman and a coward and said he deserved all of the shame and evil his failure would bring on the royal house. Apparently, the argument between the two Persian commanders got pretty heated because Artontes drew his Akinakes and made to murder the brother of the king. At this point, you have to wonder what exactly was said. Of course, there's no way to know for sure, and the whole story of Mesistes plays out a bit like a dramatic romance, so it is totally possible that this didn't happen at all, or at least we're getting a very dramatized version of the events. Herodotus certainly doesn't tell us one way or the other. However, if it did happen, it seems like this conversation escalated rapidly from you're a coward who didn't fight in the battle to murder the possible heir to the throne pretty quickly. One possibility that I personally like to imagine is that if Mesistes was not the son of one of Cyrus the Great's daughters, then it could have been a jab at his family's legitimacy and right to the throne. One of Mesistes' guards stepped in between him and the raging admiral, but a loyal Greek noble named Xeniagoras of Halicarnassus, came up behind Artontes, 
picked him up, and slammed him down on the rocks of Mount Mikale, killing the would-be assassin. For his service to the royal family, Xerxes actually made Xeniagoras the Persian governor in Cilicia after they reached Sardis. While the defeated Persians were making their long march back to Xerxes, the Greeks departed Mikale and returned to Samos, which had evicted the remaining Persian presence on the island, and welcomed the Greeks with open arms. Once there, they debated their next steps. By agreeing to back Samos in their revolt and attacking the Persians on the mainland, Leotychidas and the Greek navy had just changed the tone of this war. It was no longer about defending the mainland. But that's all the Hellenic League had strictly sworn to do when it was formed. Yet, here they were, supporting an island in rebellion, within sight of Persian territory, and presumably harboring Milesian sailors who had just attacked the Persian retreat. It was obviously impossible to occupy Ionia and Aeolia. The mainland simply didn't have the manpower to defend hundreds of miles of Anatolian coastline forever. On the other hand, there was little doubt that the Persians would carry out reprisals against the Greeks they still ruled. In a bizarrely familiar proposal to anyone who has studied modern Greek history, the Allies briefly considered the possibility of evacuating the Ionian cities altogether and relocating the Ionian Greeks to friendly mainland territory. The idea was that they could dispossess the Boeotians, Thessalians, and other Greeks who had sided with the Persians, and resettle the Ionians in those cities. The Athenians opposed this plan on the basis that it wasn't fair to the Ionians themselves or to Athens, which had its own former colonies in Ionia to support. Somewhat selfishly, this also probably meant that Athens didn't want the competition. Many of the Ionian cities, much like Athens, were merchant powers. They had huge fleets of merchants trading all around the Mediterranean, and bringing those merchants to the mainland would mean an influx of competition for Athenians. As always, Athenian resistance to any plan effectively forced the Greek navy to buckle to their demands. There would be no resettlement, but there were new allies in the Hellenic League. Leotychidas presided over representatives from Samos, Chios, Lesbos, and other islands off the coast of Ionia swearing the same oaths as the other League members. Until Mikale, all of these islanders had been firmly regarded as Persian subjects. By formally accepting their oaths, the mainland Greeks were committing to support a new Ionian revolt. Mikale had just become the opening salvo in a Greek counteroffensive. Now don't leave. I am not ready for my usual spiel yet. But ultimately, this is where I want to leave off this narrative for now. The war doesn't stop here, at sea, in Greece, or in Anatolia, and I'll get to all of that in the next episode. But this does mark a moment of distinct transition, both in the temper of the war and the narrative of the podcast. Obviously, a counteroffensive changes things. We're leaving off with two Persian armies dragging themselves back towards Sardis after crushing defeats, led by commanders 
who did not participate in the actual fighting. But the Greeks are gearing up to continue that fight. However, it is also our last full episode only covering events recorded by Herodotus. Up to this point, I've diverted to give some more attention to archaeological sources and Persian documents, but the vast majority of the narrative for the last 50 or so episodes has come from the Halicarnassian historian, the father of history, etc., etc. That ends today. There are just four more stories told by Herodotus that I plan on using in the narrative. And they will be split up across two or three different episodes about both the reign of Xerxes beyond Greece and the continuing war in the Aegean. So the next episode will carry the narrative of the Greco-Persian Wars forward one more time before we take a break and return to the Persian Empire at large and leave this war on hold for a little while. So next time, the game changes. Persia will be on the defensive, and the stage will be set for basically everything that follows. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you'll find things like my bibliography, the Achaemenid royal family tree, and the support page where you can find all of the different ways to financially support this podcast. That includes one-time donations that are available through buttons scattered all over the website, or a monthly subscription to Patreon. Patreon is a service that lets you donate monthly to an online creator like me in exchange for some kind of bonus reward, in this case, ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and more. And you can find that on that support page from the website or patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Of course, there are non-financial ways you can support as well. You can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your preferred podcast app platform is. They all have pretty good ones now, and I love to hear your feedback. But the absolute best way you can support an independent podcast like this one is to go on social media and spread the word. Tell everyone you know how awesome the history of Persia is and why they should listen. You can find me on social media to share episodes at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, or just History of Persia on Twitter. No spaces altogether. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.